0: So here we are back again, doing this on a Tuesday. Now, last Tuesday, when I did this, uh, it, it worked out pretty well. And I, uh, maybe Tuesday is a better stream day than Monday. I have no idea, but I like Tuesday because nothing else is going on. So let's, let's go do some things. Uh, tonight is, uh, tonight's a lot. Tonight is super duper a lot it uh it's a continuation of my most popular uh recording ever flat out like you you look at all the numbers every sentence as a camera was like the big thing for me and I had always intended to immediately follow it up with part two and part three um and so on and so forth like do it every week for a couple weeks and for any number of reasons I I just didn't um I I should have uh, I just did so tonight, I'm, I'm really looking forward to a chance to do something substantial and get something down that I think will really genuinely help people. I, I truly do. This is probably some of my favorite stuff to teach, favorite stuff to talk about, and I'm, I'm pretty, pretty excited to be doing it. So give me like, oh,
1: I don't know, 30 seconds to go type a tweet, and, and then we'll get started.
2: I hope you're doing well. Okay. Shall we? Shall we get into this?
0: I don't have any intro music. We're just starting from scratch. But, yeah,
1: let's do it. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. Why is this being persnickety? There we go. Okay. One two, three, press that, press that, press that. And okay. I suppose we just start. First of all, if you're hearing this and you have
0: no idea who I am and you're wondering what the hell is going on, hi, I'm John. Uh, It's my job to help you write better. And this uh, this is every sentence is a camera part two. Part one is way back on the YouTube channel. If you're watching this on YouTube, by the way, um, hi. If you're watching this on Twitch, hello. Uh, And if you're listening to this after the fact, it's delightful to have you here. Thanks for putting me in your ears. Uh, And then everything in between, it's just nice to have you. Uh, Somebody had asked me earlier today why I don't do like a nice scripted opening the way I do it for the chats on Wednesday. And To be honest, it's because I never really sat down and thought of one. But if you'd like one, here, let's just improv one. Hi, I'm John. I'm a writing coach with 25 years of experience. And uh, I help people write whatever it is they want to write. Screenplay, stage play, novel, novella, script for whatever. Uh, If it's creative and it has words, I would be more than happy to help you make it better, make it complete, finish it, start it embellish it, develop it, publish it, whatever it is you want to do. That's, that's exactly where I want to be. And I teach a very comprehensive and practical style of writing advice that I think is better than the dry ass academics, primarily because um, that advice kind of loses its luster after a while and requires you to know a lot of like, stuff that ultimately doesn't serve you in your own work. Whereas I'm gonna try and talk to you in a way that you can actually apply to your own stuff. That said, I want to really make clear uh, what exactly every sentence is a camera conceptually so that we can get into part two. So let's recap part one so that, you know, we're just all using the same idea. Every sentence is a camera is the idea that whatever sentence you're writing, be it dialogue, exposition, narration, the description of a couch, the moves and an action beat, whatever, that that sentence has a functional responsibility to put an image in the reader's head. And each sentence has the necessity or the need or the urgency to either introduce new information, something we don't already know as a reader, or expand on existing information, stuff that we have known as a reader. If a sentence isn't doing that, if it's not bringing something new to the table or expanding something else, it's kind of questionable what that sentence is doing. Now that's not to say that every sentence has to do like the maximum amount of everything. It's not about going like full throttle, no breaks all the time. It's a matter of just doing something. You just can't sit there. You just can't take up space and fill space. It has to be purposeful. And in order to do that, we default back to the most basic rule of storytelling. Writing is the act of making decisions. So those decisions you make matter. And that is equally true when we are trying to lay out sentences be they exposition or character or internal monologue or the description of a pair of sneakers or anything in between. You have to decide what it is you're trying to put in the reader's head and then find the best arrangement of words to deliver it in the way you mean at the time you mean it. This is sometimes way easier than I'm making it sound and other times far more complicated. And then the majority of the time it's somewhere in between those two extremes. Every sentence is a camera is a nice shorthand to sort of encapsulate the idea that your imagination is ideally cinematic to some degree. And you are taking that sort of movie-esque approach and not just using it to breeze through things, but instead to be deliberate and develop the things. Just because we watch a lot of TV shows that prioritize like a high-speed edit, we're going to cut from this to this to this to to that to that to over there, and what about this and what about that, doesn't mean your writing has to duplicate the editing style, but your writing has to duplicate that visual, audiovisual, full sensory uh, expression. It doesn't matter how you edit it or chop it up. It matters how you get it on the screen and the reader's imagination in the first place. That's every sentence is a camera. Understanding that is a nice stepping stone to move into this because tonight, unlike last time, I have tools for you. I have specific examples. Now, some of them, most of them are fabricated and I made them up. I didn't pull them from regular text because when I was making these graphics, it was super early in the morning and I was trying to get everything done before breakfast, but the examples are good and clear. And I hope if you're watching this and looking at the slides, then uh, this, is, this will be clear enough to you. For those listening, because this will be available just as a podcast uh, in a couple hours, if not tomorrow, definitely, uh, I will read everything out and try to explain it as I go. So bear with me and, and your patience will be greatly rewarded for sure. But my goal here is to functionally teach you how to write in a more cinematic style in what is now two videos rather than just one. We ready to do this? We ready to get started?
1: Just move my cat and we will, thank you, we will get going. Here we go. So
0: I hate to hit you with a big slide right up top, but we're going to do some math tonight. Now, before you click off, before you throw your earbuds, before you freak out, It's not very difficult math. It's just some basic counting that is, well, it used to be called story math. This isn't so much taught anymore, but it is useful. It's sort of an old fashioned way of figuring out how important stuff is. And we assign it positive numbers, generally from plus one to plus five, though more than likely you're only really going to see plus ones and plus twos because the, like the edge case and the discernment between plus three and plus four is fairly negligible. So let's just consider plus one and plus two and minus one and minus two for our story math. Now, what exactly is this math? Because all we're doing is just creating numbers. It's the idea that we're going to take numbers, positive or negative, and assign them to the words and phrases we write on a sentence by sentence basis so that we can address sort of the quality, how well we are using this phrase or how well we are getting across our idea via this phrase, how effective it is, how descriptive it is, how evocative it is, how fill in the blank it is. And it's not necessarily only like nouns and it's not only adjectives. It's just this part of the sentence, whatever it is, is doing something to contribute in a small degree or a significant degree in getting the picture I have in my head into the reader's head. When we're doing a pretty good job with that, we're going to assign it a plus one. If we're doing a real, real good job, we're going to give it a plus two. And again, this is not limited to a single word. This is not a single type of word. It's not anything like that. It's just highlighting the part of the sentence that's doing the job you need. Sometimes that can be the whole sentence because if your sentence is a single word, then yeah, sure, slap a positive on it. You're going to assign these positives. You get to put your confidence out there and go, I think this phrase, whatever it might be, that feels real plus two to me. Great. Give yourself some credit. I want to point out that there's no limit to the number you can accrue. You can flag everything as plus one. It might not be accurate. It might be just you being plus one happy and stamping it around, but you you assign your positive numbers. Now, why do we assign our own positive numbers? Because if left to our own devices, the majority of us would assign negative numbers. Assign it the sense of like, oh God, I'm doing terrible at this. This thing sucks. I don't know if it's any good. This is a mistake. I'm terrible at this. And you'd immediately just vote yourself down, so that you'd be giving yourself minus one and minus two. Oh man, I don't know if what I'm saying is clear enough the less clear something is the greater the negative number we associate with it however we don't assign our own negatives because that's a great way of just sort of perpetuating the idea that we're not good enough and ultimately we're trying to do the opposite so we assign our own positive numbers based on our assessment and our thinking and feeling and negative numbers though not frequently used negative numbers uh, used to be back in the day assigned by critique partners and editors some agents, if you get some of the older ones, uh, and any kind of publishing professional who's looking to really dissect and understand story. It's not that the word is bad. This isn't about good and bad. This is about how well is this word or this phrase doing the job you're intending it to do? Is it not necessarily the clearest, but is it the best word for the job? Is it carrying that emotional punch you want? Is it clear in its description? This is not a call for like, find a magic number it's not like every sentence has to be three or something there is no limit there is no magic number but there is value in using plus one and plus two or minus one and minus two for the sake of organizing our ideas because when it comes time for a revision those minus ones and minus twos are the first place we look to see if we can rewrite something to do a better job and the plus twos are definitely things we want to try and keep over the course of revision because we feel really strongly about them. It's a way of kind of codifying our, as a writer, our interest in something, or from a reader perspective, making sure we have a firm sense of how well we're doing our job of putting that movie in somebody else's brain. You assign the positives, somebody else assigns the negatives. And it, it's really just about getting the idea across and how well you're doing it. Because writing is the act of making decisions, And story math is the way we don't necessarily grade our decisions, but it's how we evaluate our process so far. So throughout these examples, you're going to see plus ones and plus twos in places because I'm trying to indicate how effective or not effective a particular turn of phrase is. One is not better than the other. It's not like like we're going to use this to justify never using adverbs. And it's not like we're going to use this to you know, catch passive voice. We have different tools for those sorts of things. This is just a matter of, do I dig this thing I wrote? And if so, how much? Think of it that way. On we go, though. Our first tool tonight is descriptive weight. That's W-E-I-G-H-T, weight. Descriptive weight is the idea that an element, something we've written, uh, is presented Uh, Whatever we've written, one thing is more important, given more weight, than another thing because of where it's positioned in the sentence or how the sentence is otherwise constructed. So we, we deal, for the most part, descriptive weight deals with position. Position is just a way of saying, where is this word in the sentence? Is it near the front? Is it near the middle? Is it near the end? Is it next to the verb? Is it next to the object? It just talks about its placement in sentence. There's, there's no extra, though grammatically there are rules and, and bullshit nonsense things that some professor somewhere will grade you on to understand the better qualifications of position. They are ultimately unimportant to you if you're just trying to write your romance novel or your fantasy novel. So just understand that when I say position, I'm asking you where a word is in a sentence. Normally we assess this in terms of its utility, meaning how well it does the job we're trying to do, which means you, from a writer standpoint, have to understand what it is you're trying to say. And if you ever run into a situation where you're not sure what you're trying to say, it is incredibly common to overdo descriptive weight, to just throw more words at a problem. And, you know, because eventually I have to get one of these things, right? Just quantum mechanics says so. So if I chuck Seven adjectives at one of the, you know, at at the problem, one of them has to work. And that's true. One of them eventually has to work. But the point fundamentally is we want to try and not take that much time and space up because otherwise you'll be here forever. So descriptive weight is how we sort of organize and rank and prioritize our ideas. Let's look at an example. So first we're going to talk about positional descriptive weight which is the idea that specifically because of where the word is in a sentence, we are assigning it a grade a number, uh, grades, not the right word. We're going to give it some story math in order to make sure it's being effective. So in our sample sentence, the ragged shirt hung from his frame in tatters, the, and we're looking in terms of what words were waiting, what words were making most important. What words are doing the 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 big heavy lifting that are being clearest in their descriptive job? We're gonna first flag the strongest word, and that's gonna be hung, because it's gonna paint a very specific picture, different than like sat or draped or was on his frame. Hung is real clear, so we're gonna give that a plus two, and then we're gonna look at some of the other words in the sentence. Ragged is a great descriptor to describe the state of the shirt, and we're gonna give that a plus one. And then in tatters helps qualify ragged, maybe a little bit too much. Maybe ragged and tatters are a little too similar for some of our tastes. And then while I'm going to flag it as a plus one, because I like this idea of a real thread, you know, threadbare worn shirt that's kind of just shredded at the bottom. And it's big, a big piece of fabric hanging on a real skinny frame. I like that imagery for what I'm intending to do in what would be later examples if I had written more sentence. But maybe you think ragged covers all the same ground tatters does. Or maybe you think tatters is great and ragged sucks. That's up to you. That's completely okay. We don't all have to agree on the math here. We don't all have to agree on the the priority and the numbers and things. But we just want to make sure that if our job is... You know, in this paragraph, in this sample paragraph that's not on the page, but if we were writing a, a paragraph about a, a person who survived a shipwreck and who had been badly starved and was clinging to life, we'd probably have a sentence about the ragged shirt hung in from his frame in tatters. Because what we're trying to suggest and what we're trying to do is paint that picture and lock the reader into that visual first so that we can use other sentences down the road to develop things emotionally or descriptively or internally if we get inside the character's head but we want to start by giving them something to picture and for me the ragged shirt hung from his frame in tatters really does that now on this frame and somewhat secondarily but on this frame there's also the story math we have plus one for ragged plus one for in tatters and a plus two for hung one plus one plus two is a plus four generally the higher positive value we can give a sentence The more likely we're to say that this sentence is doing a clear and effective job getting the idea across. And I want to repeat myself from before because I think I could say it clearer this time. Just because I'm talking about it being clear does not mean we're talking about a sentence that is like real minimalist or really devoid of of development or adjectives or description. We're not trying to say a thing in the fewest number of words possible. The quantity of words doesn't really matter because. This is just the idea I'm getting across, and these are the words I'm using to get it across. You might have the same idea, but present it to the reader in a completely different way, and both will be absolutely fine at doing their job. The point here is to teach positional descriptive weight. Where a word sits in a sentence matters. Because we can flip this sentence around and turn it into the shirt hung from his frame in ragged tatters, now, all of a sudden, we're qualifying the tatters as ragged. So maybe we're changing some of the uh, weight and emphasis for what we picture. We're no longer focusing on just how beat up the shirt is. We're talking specifically about parts of the shirt. But maybe we're going to, you know, flip things around and and talk about his frame. So maybe the shirt hung from his ragged frame in tatters. We could do a lot to reposition some words. And that's before we even get around to changing the words. Maybe we don't like ragged. Maybe we like nearly destroyed or barely hanging on or partially disintegrated. We can find lots of different ways of evoking a particular image, depending on what that image is. But our goal for the sentence was to start a visual image. We've done that. Positional descriptive weight is super common and super useful. It is not limited to adjectives. It can include verbs. It can include nouns. It can include phrases, prepositional phrases, verb phrases, noun phrases, all that stuff. It's just about getting the image in the reader's head. That's positional descriptive weight. But wait, there's more. There's supported descriptive weight. Now, supported descriptive weight isn't as sort of obvious as positional weight. We're not necessarily looking for specific words and specific spots, we're looking now for a cumulative effect. Now, maybe that's one sentence, maybe that's a paragraph, depends on what it is we're talking about, but the total number of things put together, be it in one sentence or multiple sentences, the total amount of stuff. So all the plus, excuse me, all the plus ones, all the plus twos come together to paint that picture. Whereas in our positional descriptive sentence, we kind of had a situation where one word is doing the most lifting and the other words are good and supportive, but it's really sort of all on the back of our, our single plus two word in our previous example. Here, we're spreading it out a little bit. Here, we're creating a mix of plus ones and plus twos because we're really trying to set some kind of description that isn't limited necessarily to just a single visual. Sometimes we want to talk about actions. Sometimes we want to talk about you know, mood or atmosphere or what a character is thinking, things that we cannot necessarily immediately express visually. For that, supported descriptive weight, also called supported description, is the same, is, is a great way of doing that. And what that looks like is this. So I'm going to read you this paragraph and then we're going to, you know, walk through it. He read the book six hours every night that week. He read it in the bathroom. He read it in bed. Over the time, the book became less of a mystery and more of a lover, slowly seducing him with its secrets and potential. That is a great mood-building sentence that also helps kind of suggest a passage of time while also suggesting activity during a passage of time. It's fantastic for supernatural horror sentences where random character has got a book and they maybe shouldn't have the book. But let's highlight some key parts of the sentence. So first sentence, He read the book six hours every night that week. We can flag six hours every night that week because that's really helping us evoke and clarify an image in our head. It's not just him reading the book. It's the degree and the frequency of him reading six hours every night that week. That is a lot of time spent reading. So let's give that a plus one. We give it plus two. Sure. Why not? Who's going to stop us? We're in charge of our stuff, of our development here. So if you want to give it a plus two, go for it. For me, that's a plus one though. And then we have a a second sentence that helps clarify and qualify that first sentence. He read it in the bathroom. He read it in bed. So now we're setting up different conditions where that reading six hours every night occurred. Bathroom and bed. I'm going to give, because I gave the the first one six hours every night, I gave that a plus one. I'm going to follow up and give the bathroom and in the bathroom and in bed, two prepositional phrases, also a plus one. So we've got three plus ones in two sentences. We are already starting real strong here but let's set more mood. Now we've talked about what the character did, but now we're going to talk about the effects of what the character did. So fine. He read six hours every night. He read it over there and he read it over there. I bet he read it in a box with a fox if I wanted to write another sentence. But now because he did this action, we should qualify. We should develop. We should describe more. We should talk about the consequences. We should talk about the impact all that reading is having. So let's continue to the next sentence. Over time, the book became less of a mystery and more of a lover slowly seducing him with its secrets and potential. So I'm going to give plus twos out here. Less of a mystery and slowly seducing are plus twos for me. They're plus twos for me because particularly the idea of more of a lover slowly seducing is very suggestive of the arrangement I want the reader to think of when, he, when we think about how the, the character is engaging with the book. We start off with less of becoming less of a mystery. Okay, he's starting to understand it. That's just acquiring knowledge, which is clear and accurate in what I want to do. So let's give that a plus two. But then I double down on it and I get more expressive with it. More of a lover slowly seducing him. Now, all of a sudden, instead of just gaining knowledge, like we're skimming on our phone, now we're creating some kind of intimacy, some kind of sensuality, some kind of like deeper impression beyond just, yep, I read that thing. And so that's definitely, particularly the phrase slowly seducing, we are giving that a plus two for sure, because now we're furthering the reader's association with what this book means to our character. And we're seducing him with its secrets, which are good. Secrets are good. Now, by mentioning the secrets, we're saying that there can be subsequent paragraphs or sentences or whole chapters about each individual secret if we want. We're, We're creating this piece of information. So let's give it a plus one. It's good. But more important here, I want to really get the reader thinking about the could-bes and the would-bes and the what-ifs of having this book, because I want to create an idea that this book is dangerous. I want to create an idea that this guy having this book is maybe not the best thing in the world. So I'm going to use a word like potential to end my paragraph, to backload this sentence, to really make it stand out. I'm going to give it uh, with its secrets plus one and potential plus two, so that we're tying together less of a mystery, slowly seducing, and potential as all the plus twos of our little paragraph. Now, we didn't outright say in this paragraph, we didn't talk about what the book looks like. We didn't talk about what the character looks like. We didn't say shit about what's in the bathroom or what's on the bed or anything. We didn't even really get into the substance of the book itself. We just sort of alluded to and sort of broadly referenced, we're creating this atmosphere of unknown and mystery that's going to drive the reader from this paragraph to the next paragraph to get more information to qualify more things, to be interested in and engaged by things. It's never, ever, ever the job of one single paragraph to do all the heavy lifting and completely, absolutely nail down for the reader one time on one page and one paragraph, everything. We're spreading butter on toast. We don't want to just glob it in one corner. We want to as evenly as possible, distribute it across the whole surface of whatever we're buttering. So here, We're not relying on one sentence to say expressly. I mean, we could say it if we were going for like hyper minimalist things, he read the book and really liked it. Sure. But that's maybe not what we're going for. Maybe we want to create that atmosphere and that mood and help draw the reader in and give the book an air of mystery or seduction or potential. So that's why we frame our our later sentences in the paragraph that way. What we're looking at now story math wise is one plus one plus one plus one plus two, plus two, plus two, four, plus six is 10. This Now, because we're giving this a 10, not, not that 10 means anything other than we just have a collection of ones and twos, but because of how impactful and evocative and creative this sentence is, and I don't mean creative like, I'm so special, I made a smart sentence. I mean, this paragraph is doing the job of creating ideas for the reader because we, we've rated it a 10. We know that when we come back to revise, if we write a, a paragraph thereafter, that's kind of a dud, that it's maybe not so hot. We, we know to keep this one because this one's a 10, but maybe the next paragraph's going to be like a three. We know maybe we could rewrite it to help us carry more of that weight, create more of that atmosphere, reinforce more of that atmosphere. So we, that's why we assign these numbers. It isn't just like, hey, I need something to do. Let's put numbers on our words. There is a value to it. There is a function to it. Supported descriptive weight Is incredibly useful when you don't just want to come right out and say a thing, whatever it is. You don't just want to come out and talk about how a character is untrustworthy or duplicitous. You don't want to talk about the weather and just say expressly, it's, you know, it's, you know, the weather the way the weather is in April. You want to talk about it in more broad terms or you want to allude to the tension in the air or an abstract thing. Supported descriptive weight is a fantastic way to help put words to a thing when you can't exactly put your finger on the specific words you need. It also helps fill space. So if you're looking to develop a word count or develop a rhythm and and help your authorial voice, supported descriptive weight is a way we can explore how we sound as a writer in getting an idea across to the reader. Descriptive weight overall an incredibly useful tool because so much of every sentence is a camera as a concept is built on your ability to create emphasis and import with our words. Some words are naturally going to be more important than others, and we want to prioritize that and evaluate them and use both their position in the sentence, why is this word in the spot that it's in, as well as its cumulative effect with all its friends hanging out in the rest of the sentences and paragraphs to help
1: give that reader a real sense of what's going on. That's supported descriptive weight. Shall we move on? For our next thing, I'm going to get a mouthful of tea. I should do a cup date, but let me get a mouthful of tea first. So tonight's tea is Moroccan. It's
0: fairly strong and it's got a little bit of mint. I'm really digging it. I got it from a neighbor. Uh, It's rad as hell because I helped their kid with their English homework and I was paid in tea and a few dollars. It was very nice. So that's my cup date, by the way. And now we're gonna move to our second tool, descriptive tension. Now, those two words sound like they don't go together, but I promise you they're going to. Now, descriptive tension, you've seen a million times. You just didn't know they had a name for it. Descriptive tension is the tension created between elements when you're trying to clarify an idea. Descriptive tension is super useful When the contrast between these two ideas or their position relative to each other is as effective or more effective together than how each individual element or an element by itself could be in getting an idea or a picture across to the reader. Descriptive tension is about understanding that you've got pieces of things and pieces added together do more, mean more, matter more, work together better than individual parts. It sounds complicated, but I swear I'm going to pull the first example and you'll totally get what I'm talking about. First example, here we go. Explicit contrast is the kind of descriptive tension where the tension is obvious. And our obvious sentence is like this Like any starved animal, she ate up the attention every chance she could. Now, where's our tension? Where is our explicit contrast? It's in the idea of starved and ate up, like any starved animal, she ate up attention every chance she could. Now, every chance she could helps qualify the timing and degree of the consumption of, her, of the attention. So I'm going to give every chance she could because it's helping flesh out and fill out this idea. I'm going to give that a plus two because it's a big deal to me and I want to make it clear to the reader that this isn't just a one-time thing, that this consumption of attention is happening as much as possible, as frequently as possible. So plus two, indeed, it is. Now, if we're doing story math here and you're, you're not looking at the screen or you, you don't see the screen, uh, you usually mark tension with a capital T. So starved and ate up are plus ones, but they're plus one with a T. So plus one T for starved, plus one T for ate up. Explicit contrast is incredibly useful when you want the words to suggest specific ideas And then those ideas overall are sort of predicated and stated for a singular purpose. I want the reader to think X, and I know that if I add this thing and that thing together, I'll get them to X because those two things are maybe opposites or those two things are related in some way. And that relationship is going to help me define the idea because sometimes I don't want to just rely on descriptive weight. I don't want to just be positional and stick a single word in there. I want to stretch my language. I want to grow a little bit. I want to say a few things more. I, just, I don't just want to be very sort of like juvenile in my, in my writing, in my description, and say stiff things like, the chair is brown, the dog is white, the tea is green. I don't want to just write very boxy, formulaic sentences. Sometimes I want to stretch and grow, and I want to push myself. So like any starved animal, comma, she ate up the attention every chance she could explicit contrast. You've done it a bajillion times. It's one of the more common ways of creating tension in language without directly setting two oppositional ideas. We're not getting like a like a, a standoff between people here. It's the idea that we've just got two we've got two or more. Now I've used two here because it's really you know a good illustration, but you could have three. you could have four. you could have seven. Who knows? You could have as many as you want. Just as long as you're able to connect some kind of contrasting relationship between the majority of them, which is maybe why you don't want to have like 30, but as long as you can establish contrast between your elements, you can develop explicit contrast to create tension to help describe an idea. Now, when I say tension, I don't necessarily mean danger or risk. I just mean you're creating a thought that the reader has to make an effort to try and resolve. And the best way to resolve that effort is to both think about the words they're reading, think about what the writer means, but it also means reading the next sentence and seeing if we can get more context clues. Explicit contrast is done best when the tension is obvious, when it's apparent in the sentence, which means you've chosen words to do the job. When you miss it, when, you, when, you're, not ex- when you're not as explicit as possible, let's say, Maybe one of the words is really explicit and the other one's just kind of, eh, it's, it's there, but it ain't great. What do you do? In that case, you're still creating contrast. It's maybe not as explicit as it could be. You take, the, you take the one word or element that's flagging, that isn't pulling the same way, that isn't giving you its tension, and you try to find a way either to rewrite the sentence so that it, it gets some elevation, it gets improved, or you rewrite the, the word in question. I wanted to use "starved and "Ate up" as my two pieces of tension, because I think that it, it's a descriptive idea without like we're not saying she's physically starving and that she's actively chewing on something. but we want to give that impression of a starved animal. We want to give that impression of how something that is starving finally descends on food. And that visual is what I'm looking to create a description for without saying, specifically, she, you know, ate like a hungry
1: animal. You know, I'm I'm suggesting it without being overt about it if that makes sense. That's explicit contrast. Let's go on to the more elaborate one. Elaborate's not the right word because
0: it's not exactly like a big complicated magic trick or anything. It's just not explicit. Implied contrast is where your phrase and your construction of sentence or sentences creates tension And it's building up and building up and building up, but you can't entirely point to the things that are generating the tension specifically. It's not like ate up and starved in the last sentence. You got to do a little bit more thinking. You got to do a little bit more context clue discerning in order to figure out where the tension is. So I've pulled a paragraph together where the the tension is kind of there, but it's not outright said. So it goes like this. No, Susan said, I can't let you out of here without your signature on the contract. Signing the contract meant agreeing with her. He knew what he had to do. Now, the critical thing I'm going to flag with a plus two in this little paragraph is Susan's statement that she can't let you out of here without your signature on the contract. Because I like this idea that Susan is generating a threat. Because maybe my next paragraph is how Susan is, you know, blocking the door or she locks the door or she looks stern or something. But I wanted to give this impression that Susan is an obstacle in our paragraph. So we give her some language to suggest that level of obstacleness, uh, obstruction, whatever you want to call it. So I'm flagging plus two with can't let you out of here without your signature on the contract. S- now we're shifting away from dialogue because no, I can't let you out of here without your signature on the contract is in quotes but now we're coming out of that dialogue. Signing the contract meant agreeing with her. He knew what he had to do. There's some ambiguity in he knew what he had to do, and I'm flagging had to do specifically as one of the plus one T's, plus one with tension. The other tension, the other plus one tension is agreeing with her. Had to do and agreeing with her create a kind of tension. It's one's ambiguous, had to do. He could do anything. He could, you know, ninja flip out of the room. He could drop a smoke bomb. He could escape through the air duct. He could sign the contract. He could not sign the contract. He could punch her in the nose. He could do a lot of things. But the ambiguity there, along with the specificity of agreeing with her, is what's creating our tension. But because we're not necessarily saying expressly the whole stakes of the scenario, We're not recapping in this paragraph, we're not doubling down, we're just creating this moment of tension and we're waiting to see the reader and we're waiting to see the character and we're waiting to see everybody kind of creep to the edge of their seat and then the next paragraph, maybe two paragraphs down the road, will pay off this setup. So our tension is at the end of the paragraph with two plus one Ts. The implication there builds our tension and sustains it. Tension doesn't just evaporate once we state it it holds until we pay it off. So our next paragraph, which isn't in my example, but if our next paragraph doesn't qualify, doesn't eventually lead to him doing the thing that he knows he has to do in that last sentence, well, we're eventually going to reach a point, a tipping point where we can't get any more tension. We can't add more to it because what we're left with is this idea of, well, eventually we just got to do the thing. How long can we Wait and wait and wait and wait until we go until we something has to happen because after a while it's not going to be believable. It's too much tension. And We're going to check out because, God, when are they just going to do something? So that fuse we light here and we'll pay it off and blow up the dynamite later. But we got to light the fuse here, and to do that, we're going to use implied contrast. The idea that tension's being built, even though the thing doing the tension maybe isn't said outright what makes this a bit more constructed, what takes a little bit more um, work to put this together is the idea that you have to know what's going to get maximum tension at this moment. Because I could write this paragraph the exact same way where Susan says, I can't let you out of here. And then there's a couple sentences of actions Susan takes to make it clear that Susan can't let the character out. But by holding those actions back, by waiting for them another paragraph, by sticking them somewhere else. We are drawing attention to before the actions, we're drawing attention to the character knowing what they have to do and knowing the implications of what's gonna what happens if they do sign the contract. So we're centering it around the contract, needing a signature and the potential problems thereof before we get to, well, here's what Susan does and here's what the character does and back and forth and back and forth. Implied contrast is great for building tension or developing ideas. Let's keep going. Next we get something we're a bit more familiar with. Active tension. I'm gonna get another mouthful of tea. I did
1: not realize we were moving quite as quickly as this. So bear with me while I I catch a mouthful. Active tension is something you're more familiar with because it happens in a ton of text,
0: in a ton of things. And if I if it wasn't already clear, I want to make it clear here. Genre doesn't matter. You could be writing a romance novel, a Western, a sci-fi thing, a fantasy story, a legal thriller, a a children's book, a a new adult story, supernatural romance, whatever. Any genre, any genre benefits from from these tools because any story benefits from these tools. And the ultimate goal overall is making every sentence a camera. Active tension is the next tool we're going to use to do that. And active tension, now I'm going to read this thing verbatim and I apologize because it's a little bit long, but it's the easiest way for me to get this idea across. Please know that this description I'm about to give you, this definition, is the simplified definition and there are some textbooks you can get out that have like four times as much detail, but I think this works. Active tension is the tension created when the elements of the sentence suggest events are happening or are about to happen. The tension in active tension is a result of the reader's anticipation and expectation as to what's going to happen when something happens. Subverting those expectations is often useful for our story development. The idea that something is about to happen doesn't mean there isn't something happening. We're not constantly waiting and waiting and waiting. It's just that the tension comes from the unknown of what could happen next. Tension happens when we don't know what's coming and we leave ourselves and we leave the reader with a question of, huh? Or I wonder what's going to happen next or anything like that. That tension is critical for maintaining engagement. Now, if you're out there and you're nervous, because I just brought up the magic E word engagement, please don't assume that your reader is looking for the first chance to run for the hills because they're not. No, no, no reader worth their shit is. It just It just doesn't work like that. Don't freak out that you have to constantly just create tension and create tension because you'll give yourself an aneurysm and your reader will have a panic attack. And neither of those conditions are good. So rather than trying to hyper-manufacture tension, just know that when it's time to get tense, we're doing it based on anticipation and expectation. So let's look at a, a great example of active tension. It's a paragraph. The timer ticked down. 30 seconds. The last siren quieted. 26 seconds. The power flickered. 20 seconds. Anna looked at her hands. 18 seconds. She ran for the basement stairs, not thinking twice about Dale and only thinking about the river. Now, to be fair, I have no earthly idea where you would use this paragraph. I guess Dale has captured Anna kept her in a basement and there's a river nearby that Anna can use to escape. Maybe Dale is like a weird creeper and Anna is his, you know, fight back victim kind of thing. But let's look at the tension we've created in this sentence. So, or paragraph rather. We started with a strong sentence to set the scene, to create an, a concept in the reader's head. A, the timer ticked down. So we immediately create in the reader's head, literally a timer. Maybe that's what we want. Now whether that's a Mickey Mouse alarm clock or a digital watch or one of those old LED clocks from school or a stopwatch or who knows what but well, we're creating specifically the image of a timer first thing and then our next sentence furthers that expectation and anticipation by creating a, a an amount of time 30 seconds and then because we're suggesting we're going to use shorter sentences fragments in some cases to really escalate tension because shorter sentences are read faster, so we keep our eyes moving, the last siren quieted. Now we're pulling away from that timer in the 30 seconds just for, just for a bit so that I can give you another detail about what's happening outside, whether that's outside the timer or outside the house or outside wherever, doesn't ultimately matter. But I'm drawing attention to the fact that I'm creating silence, the last siren quieted. So we presume now it's quiet, but then I want to go back and I want to stoke the flame. I want to poke the tension back. So we're going to bring back another fragment with time. 26 seconds. So somewhere between you know, the siren quieting and the siren not quieting, we lost four seconds. So now we're going to create, we're going to step away from the timer again. We're setting up a pattern for the reader to picture. Timer, time amount, action. Time amount, action. So our next action would be the power flicker. I'm giving them a visual flickering power, quiet siren, clock ticking down the tension. Even though I haven't really packed any strong verbs or long sentences or anything like that, I'm relying on the reader's imagination to suggest that tension for me. I don't have to hold them by the hand. I don't have to go out of the way to be like, hey, dorks, be tense. I can instead be incredibly suggest- suggestive about it. I swear I will get all the words out of my face. Forgive me. I'm a little nervous. Hang on. Tea break. I don't have to spell it all out for them. I can be suggestive. I can let their brain fill in the gaps for me so that I don't have to spend all my time writing everything because I assume they're dumb and they won't get it. I can leave them a chance to be my co-collaborator with some of my story elements. So the power flickers. Now we have to pass more time. 20 seconds. Now, prior to all those sentences from 30 to 26 to 20, we have no clear idea what Anna is doing. Who knows what she's doing? Maybe she's hyperventilating. Maybe she's putting on pants. Maybe she's fumbling for her keys. Maybe she's having a latte. I don't know. I have no idea. But now, having created some tension and given a set of limitations, ticking clock, for our paragraph, now it's time to bring in Anna. Now it's time to drive to the character. And we're going to have her do something. Maybe we could have her, you know, jump out a window or, or ninja kick or, or drop kick somebody or, I don't know, put Dale in a heel hook or something. Who knows? But instead, I'm going to have her do something fairly benign and a little weird. She looked at her hands. Now, I don't know if there's going to be a paragraph prior to this or a paragraph after this that eventually talks about Anna's relationship to her hands. Maybe they're shaking. I don't know. I don't really care for this paragraph. It doesn't matter if what her hands are doing, but the action of looking at her hands when you know there's a ticking clock, when you know we're running out of time, that's what I'm going for. Because I want the reader feeling a tightness in their chest, more or less screaming at the book, hey, Anna, start moving. Don't look at your hands. Dork, keep moving. Let's go. Danger, danger, danger. That's what I want to suggest. That's what I want to create. So by giving the Drawing the reader's attention to the idea that Anna has just looked at her hands, uh, okay, she's eating up time. So let's bring the time back into it. 18 seconds. Now, if you're looking at the visual here, I've pulled off something fairly clever that I'm proud of. If you look at where 30 seconds, 26 seconds, 20 seconds, and 18 seconds are visually arrayed in the paragraph, it forms a little downward staircase to suggest time passing and swift Moving down, 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 hop, 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 speed, speed, speed. That's a different tool for a different time. We'll talk about it later, not tonight, but maybe in part three, we'll talk about that kind of constructive tool. But for now, I want to keep the reader aware of two things. One, there's a timer and it's running out of time Two, Anna is wasting time. So now at the end of the paragraph, I want to really just kick things into gear. So we have Anna running for the basement stairs, and she's not thinking twice about Dale. And if she's not thinking twice about Dale, I want to give the reader an idea of what she is thinking about, because I want to create that contrast again, not thinking versus thinking. So we're going to have her think about the river. What river? I don't know. There's a river. Who knows? Maybe I described it earlier in the book. Maybe the river is a metaphor. Maybe the river is, you know, her safe space. Maybe the river is literally a body of water. I don't know. Doesn't really matter not critical, but the point is I'm trying to create and suggest an atmosphere here. And I'm using short sentences that yo-yo the reader's attention a little bit to really create active tension. Now, just before we go any further, did anything actually happen in this? Did any event occur here? Yeah, sure. Lots of stuff did. The siren quieted, the power flickered, Anna looked, and then Anna ran and maybe Anna thought, but that's to a lesser degree or she thought while running. So maybe we split that, you know, split the focus a little bit, but stuff happened, but it wasn't like big giant stuff. It's not like Anna used her mind lasers or, you know, Dale used telepathy. It was not super effective. I don't know. But the the point here is we don't necessarily need a lot of action to create active tension. The active, ten- the active part of active tension is that the tension is happening and it's ongoing and it's right here in our face and we have to deal with it and feel something about it. The other kind of tension, which I didn't make a slide for because it's, it's not a thing tonight. The other kind of tension is delayed tension, which is the idea that eventually there's, this is going to come around. Eventually it's going to be a thing, whether that's Later in the book, later in the chapter, two paragraphs from now, we've set something up and we're just sort of long-term delaying it, longer than the next moment delaying it so that we can eventually do something with it. That's usually reserved for more big plot things or just larger construction things that you you at this exact moment don't want to deal with, but "Ah, I'll get to it later, that kind of thing. Active tension, though, is probably going to be one of your more useful tools because it immediately commands reader attention. It is very hard to feel disconnected and and bored by short sentences very punchily moving us forward. It's a small little trick. And notice that we're using fragments. Notice that we're using short sentences on purpose. The longest sentence is the last sentence of the paragraph. Why? Well, because up until that action, up until her running for the stairs, I want to create momentum. I want to create speed. I want to pick up that writing tempo and really give us a sense of like, okay, okay, we're gaining urgency. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And then when we get to that longer sentence, you know, bang, we're off like a shot, like the start of a sprint and she just takes off. And we let our sentence run long the way our character is running for those stairs. And then with the idea of 18, 20, 26 and 30 being sort of visually arrayed as stairs in the paragraph. I'm reinforcing the idea of stairs, but for the majority of people, that's like an extra layer of nerdy on our Sunday that we don't entirely need to worry about. For now, we're just looking to create tension and manipulate it through a paragraph. I want to stop real quick and, uh, thank everybody for being here and point out, and I forgot this, that, uh, tonight's, if you're digging this, the two things you can do. One uh, you can go over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better and check it out. It would mean a great deal. Two bucks a month give you like a million things as detailed as this, if not more so all involving popular film and television stuff. And the other thing you can do, uh, if you're watching this on Twitch, feel free to follow. It's free. If you're digging this and want to see more of it, feel free to subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube, please don't forget to like and subscribe. and. Click the notification thumbs up doohickey thing so that I know you're digging this, so that I can keep making more stuff like this.
1: That said, let's keep moving. I'm going to get another mouthful of tea though. And then we'll get into action flow. Questions so far? Everybody good? I haven't even looked to see who's here.
0: I apologize for my my obliviousness with that. I wasn't trying to ignore you. I was just sort of like nervous and I'm going. So thanks for being here. It really does
2: mean a lot to me. I hope you're doing well.
1: I'm I am impressed with this tea and the real subtle mint that's coming through
0: because I'm not normally a mint guy, but I'm digging it here. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to help you. Thank you. And if it, really, honestly, if you have questions so far about anything we've talked about, um, feel free, like fire away at any time, we will have more chance for questions at the end. Cause we're almost done, but by and large, like I want you to ask questions and I want you to ask questions if, that are s- simple or complicated or hyper specific to you or, you know, whatever. I want you to ask questions. I want you to like get this stuff. I want you to have these tools for your toolbox. So let's do action flow. Action flow is the way we move from one element to the next. Now, hang on. There's a question in chat. Are gerunds a massive problem in writing? What an excellent question. Now, a gerund is a word that ends in ING. If you don't know what a gerund is, are gerunds a massive problem? I can't speak for them universally. They're not like the worst words ever in the history of worddom. So I can't say they're always a massive problem. I can tell you that gerunds can, for some writers, sometimes be a problem when they become over reliant on gerunds to move things forward. They always want to conjure a a verb or an action in order to describe something. Like the car is running, the motor moving, the timer counting uh the person going they're doing like you're if you're becoming over reliant on gerund and you're always taking the reader to the next verb the next ing verb or the next ang verb whatever it might be uh then yes that can be a problem because you're you're accomplishing tasks stuff's happening but it might not necessarily be the best description the best movie in our head the most cinematic way of approaching the problem stuff happening And the clarity of its description are not the same thing. Even if you were to pick really, really clear verbs, you still have plenty of descriptive space to fill. For instance, if I say I'm uh, pouring a cup of tea, and my gerund there is pouring, I have plenty of descriptive room to qualify and better develop the action of pouring or the tea that I'm pouring or the receptacle into which I am pouring it or how I feel about pouring or how I feel about the tea or the time of day or the room I'm pouring the tea in. Like there's all these different factors that pouring isn't covering for me. Now that doesn't necessarily mean I absolutely 1000 million percent have to say something about the gerunds. Like sometimes I'm just writing a sentence where the character's pouring tea. And ultimately it doesn't matter if, you know, it's a Thursday or a Tuesday or the fifth Saturday after St. Swithin's day or whatever, that might not matter. But when you become over-reliant on gerunds, just like if you were to become over-reliant on adverbs or over-reliant on one particular word over and over and over again, it can become a problem because while it might be accomplishing something That somethingness might not be as clear as you think. It's clear in your head because you know what you mean, but the reason why it's clear to you is not making its way onto the page to make it clearer for the reader. So it's not always the Jaren's fault, but when it becomes overused, when it's just the go-to solution for every problem, it does become a problem because Jaren's generally are part of a solution for a problem. They are not necessarily a solution all by themselves, but you can totally use gerunds and all the time. It's just a, it's an, it's another word, just like anything else, but being purposeful, being aware of the gerund and aware of what it suggests or what it, what part of it, like when I say pouring as in pouring tea, it's going to put a specific picture in your head. I, if I don't care, if it's not that big a deal, I'll go with pouring and leave it alone. But if I need you to see my shaking hand while I'm pouring, if I need you to understand that I'm I'm thinking about something, so I'm distracted as I'm pouring, I have a responsibility to get that other information out to you. So it's not the gerund's fault that I'm not putting the extra information out. It's my fault. I'm, I just got to say more things. It's not the gerund itself, but gerund's can be a problem. I hope that answers your question. I know that got a little bit kind of
1: windy. So I hope we were able to navigate through that for you back to action flow. So we're moving from
0: one thing to the next in the way that all the, you know, um, cumulative impact of stuff, this plus, this plus, this plus, this is suggestive as a relationship between all the events. We're going from A to B to C to D because we're trying to create a relationship between A, B, C, and D it's quantity of things, but also the quality of each thing as way in in order for us to describe a whole set of actions. Instead of just saying like, I'm having tea. Hey, look, I'm using a gerund. I'm having tea. There's a whole list of what are called nested descriptors because they're involved in having tea, but they themselves are not the word having. It's the cup, it's pouring, it's the water, it's the tea, it's the steeping of the tea. It's me drinking it. It's me putting the mug down this, that, and the other thing. None of it is specifically the word have, but it's all the stuff related to the idea of having tea. That is an example of action flow. If we look at our science fictiony example where we're trying to sort of evaluate and clarify things, we would go like this to create an action flow the last of the cells latched shut and the new members of cell block W37 were left alone in silence, but not darkness. The four prisoners did what each prisoner always does in cell block W37. Check the cell door, then look for seams in the wall plates before finding the best place to sit and start thinking about how to escape. Now, if I'm going to highlight a specific visual, I want to give you a plus two for this. I'm going to grab the last of the cells latched shut because there's a whole pile of evocative imagery there. The idea of a door closing, maybe there's a sound associated with it. Maybe there's a sense of weight or mass or inertia or mechanization there. That's entirely up to whatever else I qualify or whatever else I describe it. Or maybe I leave it for you, the reader, because ultimately it only matters that you know the cells are latched shut. The how of it being latched shut, I might leave that to you to fill in the blank so that you can add your own appropriate sci-fi-ness to it. But I do want to create that action flow. So we're going to do it later in the paragraph. Check the cell door, look for seams and wall plates, find the best place to sit, start thinking about escape. Four things. They are not any of them the same thing, and they are done in some sort of order. One, then two, before three, and finally four, but they're all related to the idea of what everybody does in the cell block. And each item is distinct. Check the cell door. Do I give it any further qualification or clarification? Maybe in a later paragraph, but not right now. Right now, I just want to give you the idea and I'll leave it for you, the reader, to fill in what checking the cell door looks like. In the same way that looking for seams in the wall plates isn't further qualified in this paragraph, but it's around there. Maybe there'll be another paragraph. Maybe, maybe it'll be in another sentence. Maybe it'll be the next thing. Who knows? But looking for the seams is another idea that I want to seed, but not necessarily develop. Not yet. Before finding the best place to sit. Now, so far it's check the cell door one, then second thing to do, look for seams. Do one and two before three, before finding a place to sit. And then the last, after we have found a place to sit, start thinking about how to escape. There is a procedural organization to these four things. We are creating the idea of essentially a checklist. This, 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 and this. A flow and a movement and a progression. Now, if we turn this into something more active, like super active, like it's the punches thrown in a boxing match, then we would maybe not do this in a list with a colon. Maybe we'd break it into individual sentences or short paragraphs, or maybe we would describe each punch in its own little way. Depends on what we want to do, but we would use again, the same kind of idea that one thing comes after the next comes after the next and so on, because the reader is both looking for the individual things, punch, 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 or check, look, sit, think. But we're also looking for that cumulative, the whole total sum package, the did what every prisoner always does, pile of things that we can tie together into a ribbon. That organization of ideas really helps nail down the specifics as well as the broad details of a set of things I'm giving to the reader. No matter what, no matter how else we describe cell block W37, no matter if we go back and start individuating the new members or prisoners in general or the prison as a whole, by creating this specific action flow, we are creating a level of description the reader can think about as they move forward through the story. Now, maybe we're, in a, maybe we're writing a romance novel, not necessarily with this example, but maybe. But if we're writing a romance novel and we're writing, I don't know, a fairly spicy scene where somebody's pants are coming off, then our action flow might be all the actions people take in physical intimacy maybe it's the action flow isn't physical action maybe it's a series of thoughts oh that person is attractive ooh look at their hands ooh i like their body oh yes let's get naked as long as there is some kind of relationship between some number of things and you're making that relationship understandable clear sort of clear explicit, somewhat implied, some combination of it doesn't really matter. But as long as you're saying there's a relationship between things and you're able to read and figure out what that is, you're using an action flow. Now to do this or the frequency of doing this can be a problem. If you always go for this, like if you have really active characters who have a lot of shit to do, you know, a knight on a quest, running around, collecting like 10 magic gems for the wizard because he has an exclamation point over his head. If if you can't, much like we talked about with gerunds, if you if this becomes your go-to solution for developing and describing things, after a while, it's going to feel very monotonous. Even if you shuffle around the structure, even if you put the list of things in the beginning of a paragraph, or maybe put it as its own paragraph. But after a while, the reader's eye and the reader's brain gets conditioned to always look for. One, then two, then three, then four. Okay, great. And after a while, you get this sort of narcotic effect where the reader tunes out, which is what we are absolutely positively trying to avoid. Every sentence is a camera, does not ever absolve us of our responsibility in making sure the reader's paying attention. That's not because we think the reader's bad or that we have to punish the reader or we have to like. Demonstrate how much smarter we are than the reader. It's more a matter of, hey, reader, you came to this story wanting a story. Pay attention and let me give you this story. And that relationship of mutual respect and care and that sort of co investment of effort, my effort to write, your effort to imagine, allows the reader's emotions to be sort of exposed and to be affected by the words we write. That's That's the beauty of art. That's how we make writing impactful. We, we touch them. We, we, we reach something in them and they, they click with it. And we do that by making sure we're putting a clear
1: movie in their heads, by making sure that when I say a thing, it has an impact
2: like an action flow. On we go. Constructive volume.
1: Now,
0: constructive volume is uh, our last topic of the night. I'm surprised. we kind of flew through this and I apologize. And if you want me to go back and cover anything again, just holler. I'd be happy to. I was honestly thinking I had like two full hours of info, but constructive volume is the last of our five tools for the night. And constructive volume is progressive and sequential improvement based on story map. So this is why those plus ones and plus twos matter. And it's the idea that as we go through a sentence, we're having our plus ones, we're having our plus twos. And since we're rolling along and we're constantly hitting ones and twos, the overall volume of information is what's helping contribute to that clear picture in the reader's head. So we get this example, which is something I wrote kind of last minute. Marvin packed the car with the same intensity that he approached everything else in life, which is to say that a strong breeze could have placed the bags in the trunk with greater ease and speed. Of the 10 bags needing to fit in the car, only one moved from where Karen had placed it, now balanced on the hood of the car, its contents threatening to spill onto the gravel driveway. So let's go through this real quick and just take a look at the number of things that have been suggested and created that you're picturing in your head to some degree. Well, there's a dude named Marvin, and Marvin packs a car or is in the middle of packing a car, and Marvin's approach to packing the car gives you an impression of the sort of person Marvin is. The idea of a strong breeze placing bags in trunk with ease and speed doesn't mean there's actually a breeze, it's qualifying the intensity Marvin is using to pack the car. In that first sentence, and we're just dealing with the first sentence right now, the big thing I want to get across is the idea that the same way he's doing this, Marvin does everything. He approached everything else in his life. That's our plus two. And in order to make sure you understand that I'm talking about it, he approached everything this way. I want to make sure that the, the one of the first plus ones in our sentence is the same intensity. So I'm partnering the idea of intensity along with approached everything else. I'm really making it clear that Marvin is kind of a schlub. And then I'm going to use the back half of the sentence to qualify his approach. A strong breeze could have placed the the thing he had to do, the bags in the trunk, with greater ease and speed. I want to tag strong breeze as a plus one, but greater ease and speed is a plus two because I've got that contrast between the idea of a breeze suddenly being able to put bags in a trunk. And since those two ideas, those two ideas don't really like make sense, it's hard to imagine it being anything other than a, like a normal breeze doesn't operate that way. And I'm using that kind of disconnect in order to, um, in order to be suggestive of how I want things to come across. But now we're going to get more concrete because we got kind of abstract in that, in that first part. So let's get concrete. Of the 10 bags I needed needing to fit in the car, only one, there's our contrast, 10 and one, only one had moved from where Karen had placed it. Now balanced on the hood of the car, its contents threatening to spill on the gravel driveway. So the qualification of where this one bag is now on the hood of the car, plus one. But I can qualify that, I can give it more descriptive weight. It's contents threatening to spill. So now all of a sudden I've got this bag and it's probably open. Maybe it's on its side. Maybe it's balanced not really well. Like when you put your cup of coffee on the hood of the car and it's, it's not entirely on the flat part of the car. It's starting to tip near the door. It's threatening to spill the, the phrase threatening to spill. I would definitely want to highlight. So let's give that a plus two. Cause I think that's a really great way of getting the picture clearly across to the reader. The combination of ones and twos here, and the way I'm using contrast and the way I'm highlighting certain things allows us to really pull this paragraph together in such a way that we're developing and building something to give an impression to the reader overall. We're not relying on one single part of one single sentence to be like, this is the thing to take away. Summarize everything down to this one phrase. There are times and places for that. This is not one of them, though. So, what we have instead is a cumulative effect, a volume, a volume we've built, a volume we've constructed, which is what we get for constructive volume. We can do this for description. We can do this for action. We can do this for a series of events. We can do this for anything, really. But the whole point is that it's an accumulation of detail that when we're done reading, whether it's a paragraph, whether it's a sentence, whether it's a chapter, a page, an act, a chunk, whatever you want to call it. When we're done reading the thing, there's a whole very clear picture in our head that gives us the opportunity to sort of contextualize it, frame it, press save, lock it into our brains, and then move on to whatever the next thing is. That's how we shape and build this movie. That's how we can best utilize the idea of every sentence acting as a camera, even if not every sentence is directly visually Relaying us information about a character's actions and movements. Every sentence is a camera in the sense that it is giving us something to picture or think about or know that maybe we didn't know as well as we do now. That's the second level of every sentence is a camera. The first time we talked about it, it was all about what is the character doing? What should the reader be picturing? And now we're taking that as sort of a given. Yeah you're going to picture shit when you read, but now we're going to give you some tools to really better develop and and frame out that kind of picturing. It's not always going to be characters doing actions. Sometimes it's how things feel or how you should feel or what you need to know or what you need to understand. Those are abstract compared to the direct action of character does a thing. Other character does a thing. Somebody talks, somebody walks. We want to add more than that because we want to
1: elevate your writing overall that's that's the goal here the important thing here with constructive volume cuz it
0: sounds real simple and by and large it's pretty straightforward and you've done it for your entire life you've ever told stories and it seems really like i use this all the time what the hell's the problem there are five things you need to know five very significant problems that will absolutely get you rejections uh, get you flagged in editing
1: uh, really just fuck your shit up. Mouthful of tea first though. Whenever I talk about constructive volume with a writer, like in a one-on-one or a or a free session, by
0: the way, if you ever want a free session, go to the website, johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. You can talk to me for free. Um whenever I talk to somebody about like, hey, describe more stuff. Please put more words on the page. Uh, they take that as sort of this demand that, oh, I have to put like a lot more words on the page. Holy shit. And that's not at all what I'm saying. And when you start kind of sort of bloating your manuscript up with a ton of stuff, oh, I'm going to throw this in here. And what about this? And what about that? And oh, here's this and oh, here's that there's this thing. And there's that thing. Um, here, here are the five big sort of problems that happen. One, uh, all these details will not get their proper weight or value. You'll just throw 15 adjectives at me or 10 events in one paragraph, this and this and this and this and this. And it's impossible for me, the reader, forget me, the coach, forget me, the person trying to just walk you through how to write better, just me reading your stuff. If you throw too many things at me, it's going to be harder for me to know what's more important. What's more important than what? Is A more important than B? Is Q more important than L? This, 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 and this, which is, which is, material which matters most. Because I, a reader, just like any reader, wants to organize this information, wants to understand, okay, this is more important than that. I'm going to make a hierarchy. I'm going to frame it out. I'm going to be doing this while this is happening. I'm going to set up the picture in my head. Just throwing the details at me and saying, figure it out is is sort of like being thrown a jigsaw puzzle and then saying to somebody, build it in the air while the pieces are falling, which is not a thing that happens second major problem when you throw a ton of detail and constructive volume together. Some of those details get lost. You you give me five details and you, you, you barely tell me which ones are important. Chances are, if you're asking me to recount it later or remember it down the road, I'm going to forget something. Now, maybe that's because I did a lot of drugs for many, many years, but more than likely it's because I didn't get a chance to wait or evaluate or appreciate the things you gave me. And you just Hurled a ton at me and and basically screamed at me, Keep up, John, which is not really gonna encourage me to keep up at all. It's gonna make me get frustrated, which leads us to the third thing. When you pack a paragraph like super tight with detail, you gotta remember that not every detail matters. You might like it because you wrote it, you're biased. You might think it's super important that I know about every vein in the marble and every bell and whistle and switch on the ship dashboard, you might desperately need me to know right now in this chapter that one person's particular shirt, because you're being historically accurate, has this many buttons on it. It might be a real big deal to you. Um if I don't know that it matters, if you haven't made it clear to me that I should be paying attention that way. I'm going to tell you that most of the time, I don't give a shit about buttons because it just doesn't occur to me. And even if you were to give me buttons and sleeves and bells and cuffs and frills and fringe and epaulets and this, that, and the other, not every detail ultimately matters. No matter how many you shove into a paragraph, not everything is going to matter. And as a consequence of shoving everything in its mother in a paragraph, the sentence or paragraph becomes a pain in the ass to read. You know, I consider myself a fairly savvy reader. I've been reading a very, very long time. I've read a lot of stuff. Now I'm sure there are human beings in this world who have read more than me, but they're not the ones talking into this microphone. But I can tell you from personal experience that if sentences are hard to read because they're just super dense with information, they're maybe poorly punctuated as well, and there's no real sense of priority or where i should focus and it's just kind of like a like a vomit of information i am not going to enjoy reading it i don't care how critical or urgent it is if you've made it uncomfortable to read i am going to struggle to do it which is not a great position to put me the reader of things in likewise from a more writer businessy kind of a thing if you fatten up all your ideas with a million details and a millions pieces of complication and this, that, and the other thing, all the tension you're trying to build as your number of details grows, the, all that tension is going to start to evaporate because I've got to slow everything down in order to like concretely lock into my head. Okay. There's nine details here. There's this and this and this and this and this, so on and so forth over and over and over that. Oh slows everything down. Now, maybe sometimes it's okay, and I want to be clear about this. Sometimes, yes, it is completely, 1,000 million percent, absolutely positively good to slow things down. You want to describe something. You want to set something up. You're trying to build tension. You want to make us worry about the monster under the bed. You want to really make us linger on a particular feeling because we haven't had anything happen yet. We're waiting and waiting and waiting for the, the explosion to happen or something like that. We want that tension, slow everything down, but if we slow everything down and the tension isn't maintained, all you've done is basically just act like the world's most boring museum tour guide. And you've got us staring at a thing while you flatly and monotonely tell me that in the paleolithic era, prehistoric man walked upright and unlike the Flintstones did not carve their television set out of stone. And you want to avoid doing anything like that. You don't, you know, don't tranquilize me. Don't yank all the tension out, but at the same time, slowing down sometimes in some cases is okay and even ideal, but if it becomes the default setting for your writing, because you are just throwing everything at the reader, it's not going to work in your favor. It's not going to help. And while every sentence might be a camera in that situation it's not moving nearly enough. It's not active enough. It's not being, you know, decisive enough because writing is the act of making decisions. We want that decisiveness. We want that clarity of focus. We want to know that you, the writer of this, have a picture in your head, have an intended movie you want us to view in our brain space and that we're doing it. We're not just watching a very slow progression of, oh God, what is this? Like 30 gerunds and 27 adverbs and I think that's a set like multiple semicolons. Don't do that. Keep things moving. Keep things describing. You can always make another paragraph. You can always write another sentence. You can always keep
1: us going along. That's what matters here with constructive volume.
2: Are there any questions about anything we've covered? Yes, no. Big things, little things, small things, middle-sized things. Shall we get out of here? Are we done? Possible? I do want to point out that this is
1: going uh, straight up on YouTube right now and it'll be out on the podcast feed.
0: Oh gosh, shortly, 15 minutes tops. And, um, yeah, this is the first stream of the week. There are multiple coming. Maybe we should, uh, maybe we should go over that real quick. Let's, let's get out of here and go grab the calendar for a hot second. Where's my calendar? So this, by the way, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate all your comments, your likes, subscribes, your attendance, your questions, your interaction, all that stuff. Loved it. Thanks for being here. This is the first of three streams this week. Oh man, I got to like definitely stretch before we do the next one. Tonight was every sentence is a camera part two. Tomorrow night is Wednesday, March the twenty. I almost said October for some reason. March the 29th. Uh, We'll be right back here, 7 p.m. Eastern for the writer's chat. The questions tomorrow, oh, some of them are bangers. Some are quite spicy. Mostly, though, they're very, very good. They are really strong questions. You are, of course, very welcome right back here in Twitch and YouTube form for the writer's chat tomorrow. Now, Thursday, Thursday, I've got something special, something brand new a brand new series of videos, a brand new idea, a brand new, just general thing that, uh, one of my really amazing friends suggested to me. If you follow me on Patreon, if you're a Patreon patron, you know that whenever we cover a movie every week, or whenever we talk about a TV show, or whenever we do a season of television or something, I often bring up the idea of how would I rewrite? How would I craft a story to fix its, You know, to, kind of fix the things that didn't work or make use of the tools we talk about when we're talking about dissecting a story. So if we praise a thing for its characters, how can we build it so the characters get even more attention? If we find a story where the plot falls apart in the end, how would we rebuild a climax? That kind of thing. I've never really done that outside of Patreon, Um, mainly because it never really occurred to me, and I've always honestly used that as a hook for Patreon. Hey, if you ever want to know, like, how I'd fix this thing that everybody says is busted. Two bucks a month, please, and, and I'll, I'll fix all the busted things you want me to. But I think, I think you're right. I think I should, you know, give this a try out in the, the big wild field and just show off what it is I do. So this coming Thursday, I don't have a graphic loaded for it, but this coming Thursday, uh, I am developing how to write a better or writing a better dot, dot, dot where uh I'm going to take periodically a particular franchise or an a concept or an idea like a movie series or a book series or something like that and just talk about it broadly. Now, I don't know how long that's going to be. Maybe it'll be 15 minutes, maybe it'll be 30 minutes. Who knows? We'll find out together. But the overall goal is to show you how to use a, co- a collection of narrative design tools, storycraft tools, editing tools and really create a new version of a thing that ticks a few boxes that I want, that engages in a particular way, that it isn't just like, oh, do more of the same, or just add more robots or something. I'm starting with the Terminator franchise. I have a soft spot for the Terminator franchise. We'll talk about why on Thursday, but I, I want to rewrite it because I don't know if you know this, but very little of the Terminator franchise is real, real good, and a lot of it is quite not good. And I wonder why, well, to be fair, I'm pretty sure I know why, but it's time we take a look at salvaging it by, you know, what are its pluses? What are its minuses and how do we rebuild it? So that is Thursday right here on Twitch and YouTube, 7 PM Eastern, how to write a better Terminator franchise. I would love for you to be here. I'm excited to do it because it's just going to be a lot of fun and we'll have a good time doing it. And we get to talk about Terminator stuff. And. I, I haven't made graphics for it yet. I'm letting you behind the curtain. I haven't done the graphics. So who knows what we're going to talk about and what it's going to look like. Maybe it's just going to be me staring at a single picture of a Terminator talking for five minutes. Who knows? But we're damn sure we're going to have a good time doing it. And I would really, really absolutely love for you to be here. So that's our streaming calendar this week. I'm, I'm pretty damn pumped. Thanks so much for being here tonight. It really meant the world to me. You guys are
1: great thanks so much. All power to all people. I'll talk to you tomorrow for the writer's
2: chat. See ya.